Welcome yet again to another episode of the Shaping Design Podcast, where we talk to designers from all walks of life and discuss their stories, strategies, and tactics that can help you become a better designer. I'm your host and hula hoop champion, Mitchell Bernstein. That is true. Our guest today is Dan Pollock, designer at Raycast, who also released an advanced course on building websites with Framer. I talk about pretty deep into color accessibility, how designers seem to dislike challenging the status quo, and of course, process of creating a digital course. Before we dive in, just want to say I launched my own framework template. You can check it out in the description below and quickly spin up a documentation hub for your web app or company in seconds. And as always, we want to thank Framer for sponsoring the podcast. Go to the link in the description below if you want a major discount off of your next Framer site. Please like and subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening or watching on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Substack. And now, onto the pod with Dan Pollock. Yeah, once with um, Rid. What is this? Um, to do one of his deep dive things. Oh, he does the deep dive, right. I saw that. You, you, you mentioned it on there. The clip that I saw today on Twitter from that was you and Jay-Z have a relationship <laughs> through design somehow. Um <laughs> Yeah, maybe a bit misleading, but I used to work <laughs> for Tidal, which is a company he okay. owned. There you go. And we never saw him. He was like completely like just an owner in principle. But yeah. every now and then in a product meeting, you'd get some arbitrary feedback that apparently came from Jay-Z. Oh, shit. And you never <laughs> quite believed it, but it did make you feel pretty cool. How do you handle feedback? Is it something that you're really comfortable with or... Uh, I'm assuming at this point, if you're talking to people with feedback from Jay-Z, you're going to be like, uh, oh, yeah. So how, yeah. how does that work? I mean, like I've grown much more comfortable over the years with feedback. I think when you're first starting out, it feels like a personal thing. Yeah. Um, but at this point, I've been designing for almost 10 years now. And in those feedback sessions for like 10 years now, and you learn to like separate yourself from your work a little bit more, which is, uh, I think it's a, it's a difficult thing to do, but you learn to just like, yeah, this feedback is actually just going to make the design better. It's probably a blind spot that I have. Or like you get really good at counteracting feedback and be like, yes, I actually did think of that, but here's why I didn't do it. Um, <laughs> so if you're like an argumentative well, I... person, that's your strategy. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, sometimes people, I think for, from my perspective, looking back, they are not happy when kind of going back and forth with me because I usually come prepared with like the answer to everything. It's like, oh, no, I thought about yeah. this and this and why I didn't do this. And I think sometimes people, they need to hear, oh, that's a great idea. Thank you for yeah. suggesting that. And even if it's not good, I think that unfortunately, some people can't handle, they can't handle the truth. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you have to figure out how to like communicate to them. Are there any strategies you use to communicate with other designers or other coworkers on the different teams to like give them feedback? Yeah, I think uh, unfortunately, like the old approach is really the best one. Um, I'm sure you would have heard of the shit sandwich, but yeah. you should always lead with the good stuff. Like make sure, make sure to like. And not just um, like fake what you think is good about it. Like actually think about what does work about this? What is the pro of this approach? And then just like talk about that a little bit and be like, I see why you did it this way. And I really like that it does this and this and this. But I wonder if the benefits outweigh the costs, which are this and this and this. Um, because as a, especially as a junior, when you just, when you pluck up the courage to get feedback from someone, if the first thing you hear is like negative, even if it's not a big negative, it just like drags you down, kills your confidence. So you do have to just try to look for the positives. Mm -hmm. I think when you're working with senior designers, people are a bit more like comfortable with the feedback or someone you're like really close with. You can, you know, you can just cut to the point and be like, yeah, this isn't, this isn't working or, you know, just be a bit more, precise with your feedback mm -hmm. um yeah it's hard interpersonal things are hard soft skills are hard 
Never Do you remember it. a designer on Twitter named Jared Arandu? Arandu? No, I, no, I don't think so. He was like a really young designer, and he became famous because at the time he was like in his teens, and he mm. was leading products at different companies, whatever it was. And people asked him like, "Okay, can you do this thing for me?" And they go, "Yeah, cool. Is it okay? You know, like, just let you know, I'm like 15 or 13 years old." And then they would like shut him <laughs> down, and that was like a big thing. It's like age, you know, it's about a number, blah blah blah, but. But he wrote an article about, I think, working, I want to say, with um, one of the founders of Twitter on Medium or something. I don't remember what it was. But the point of the story was, at that company, wherever they were working at, that incubator, they said, we don't need to sugarcoat things and tell you the good because you're Hmm. good enough to be here. You should already know what the good is. And we're just going to tell you what you need to fix. Because that yeah. means we need you need our help. You need our eyes. What do you think of that? I think it's nice in theory, but in practice, I I haven't really had too many like working relationships where you could just do that, right? Like it requires a lot of trust, and I, I totally respect and admire <laughs> the the sort of the idea behind it. But people, you know, like people are people. They still want to feel respected and praised. Um, and maybe, maybe for that company, that's not the forum, like they get the praise elsewhere, but you kind of need, I mean, we are just humans. We need, we need to feel like what we're doing is good and people recognize that, you know? So how does someone like Um, Steve Jobs get so many people to work for him? If like, yeah, he's like an asshole. Yeah. I, I mean, this is a question I think about quite a lot because people like venerate Steve Jobs and Personally, like I read the Walter Isaacson biography and I was like, this guy is the worst. I would have hated every second. But having said that, I have worked in situations that are very similar. And it's amazing when you finally break through the ceiling and get good feedback. Like if you are the kind of person who will keep, like not be um, sort of demotivated by the negative feedback or the harsh feedback and keep trying to get better once you get to that level where you're getting like positive feedback it feels amazing but not everyone is motivated quite like that and i think if i were to imagine what steve jobs would say he'd be like only 18 players you know can rise to this level like if you're hurt by this feedback you're a b-team player that sort of thing i'm not (laughs) sure that that's accurate but People uh, people will r- rise to the occasion if there's if it's someone they really respect giving them like harsh feedback. I think it hits a bit different to you know, someone you've just met or someone you don't really have a lot of respect for in your team or you know. I'll, I'm gonna push back as devil's advocate just because I, I I agree with you. I think that there's a way to motivate people. However, I think that there are some people who just give more. Um, Sam Parr in another podcast, he says, some people's ovens burn hotter. Yeah. And definitely true. That even if you get negative or positive feedback, sometimes you just can't get your oven to burn hotter. But that might not just be like because they don't want it. It might be because of their like circumstances in life. Like if you have kids, they come first. If you have Hmm. family, if you have issues, if you know, that stuff sometimes comes first. It's, I guess, based on prioritization. So maybe there's a way to unlock people to get them to reprioritize things in their life. But then that's also kind of evil in a way. Cause you're like saying mm-hmm. my work, the things I'm asking you to do for me to make me money is more important than your life. So I think that's yeah. probably the downside of that. Yeah. I think the crux of this issue is like, you have to really care about mm-hmm. the thing you're working on to rise to that level. That's true. right. And not all of us are in the position where we're lucky enough to work on something we really care about. Um, and I think Steve Jobs like managed to h- gather a lot of people and motivate them to really care about the things they were building. Um, but if you're building like, I don't know, like an accounting app, like maybe it's kind of hard for you to like turn your oven all the way up all the time, <laughs> you know? It's, uh, Just I think it's relative. Taxes. Um... Yeah. <laughs> What what I would ask is then, so do you lead a design team, a team of designers, or are you the only designer at Raycast? 
No, so we're, we recently expanded the team to four and we're pretty much all senior designers. So there is no like design lead at okay. Raycast. I was going to say, um, how do you yeah. motivate people to care then? Yeah, it's difficult. It's not really something that's fallen into my remit historically. Um, yeah, I'm not sure I have a, a good answer for that. I think I sort of assume that if you've taken the time to go through like three or four design interviews to get to this company, you should, you should probably care by this point. But um, I'm not sure. I've worked at um, so the previous company I was working with makes like a enterprise VPN, which is a lot harder to care about, right? The <laughs> subject matter isn't that interesting. But I think we found we found value in working with really smart people. So they all sort of spun out of Dropbox. And so there was so much knowledge in each room that you'd just be like, okay, this is an amazing place to just sit and learn about how to build a company, how to build an app, how to think about product. And maybe it's in a space I'm not accustomed with, like enterprise sales sort of targeted company. But wow, like I'm the dumbest person in this room. So it's really, it's, it's a really like invigorating feeling mm -hmm. to be in those rooms. That's awesome. Uh, I completely skipped over like how you even got into design. So let's jump back a little bit. How'd you get to the point where you are now? And then you can walk us through a little bit about uh, your work at Raycast. So how'd you get to where you are now from how you got into design, all that stuff? Sure. I guess I'll start with like the beginning. <laughs> um, I, so I studied journalism and I specialized in photojournalism. So I guess I wanted to be like a photojournalist, like a you know, wartime photographer sort of guy. But um, when we were doing like the practical portions of the course, like I got really, really good at Photoshop. I just loved it. Uh, and I started doing all these like surrealist self-portraits and edits of myself. Um, and obviously like the lecturers <laughs> didn't like that at all because Photoshop and journalism don't go hand in hand. Um, but after I left university, I had like a bunch of Photoshop expertise and I sort of spent some time being like a professional photo retoucher for like advertisers and stuff. And uh, like, that wasn't exactly a growth industry. And I was sort of like, trying to figure out what to do. I ended up working on a cruise ship for six months being a photographer. And um, I was trying to figure out what to do. And it's around the time material design came out, like the full material design guidelines and everything. And I was like, whoa, that's a job. That's crazy. I didn't know people actually like designed these interfaces I was using. It just like never occurred to me. And I looked into it and they were using Photoshop to do it at the time. And I was like, well, I know how to use Photoshop. And I managed to convince a web agency in back in, in Cape Town in South Africa to hire me and give me a job. <laughs> and um, yeah, I just sort of became a designer after that. Um, and fast forward to today, like I've worked for a bunch of different companies. I've moved countries um, for jobs. So I moved from South Africa to Norway. Um, I ended up working for Tidal in Norway. And about two years ago, I moved to London, um, where Raycast is based. But that's actually completely coincidental. It's a fully remote company, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> and so now you're at Raycast. Yeah. And so what's that like? Can you describe for the audience a little bit what Raycast is and like give the elevator pitch? Well, uh, it's convenient that I'm working on the new website because I've been thinking about the <laughs> elevator pitch quite a lot. Um, so Raycast is a Spotlight replacement. So a Spotlight being the, the way you search your Mac when you press Command Space, you search your Mac for files and folders. Raycast is a replacement for that that is just like way, way, way smarter. So it has like really smart built-in defaults like our Calculator is way smarter. You can calculate anything. You can convert any currency, basically. 
Um, it's got a bunch of like really cool default features like that. And it also has an extension store, so you can extend it to integrate with any app you use pretty much. So like a popular one is linear. Um, you can like create linear issues straight from your keyboard. You never have to open linear. You can browse open issues. You can do all sorts of, st all sorts of stuff straight from your keyboard. And, um, and we have AI now, so you can chat GPT straight from command space, really, which is pretty cool. Awesome. And what do you do? Like, I, I don't know how much design work goes into that because it's just a search bar. Uh, so like, ex walk us through a little bit about like your work on it. So I'm fairly new. I've only been working there for like four months now. Um, but the way the team split up at the moment, we sort of have like two main areas, right? We have the macOS app and then we have the web side of stuff. So we have the website, but it also has the extension store where you can browse and add extensions and stuff. And um, I'm not sure many people know this, but the macOS stuff is like all completely custom. It's not like uh, we're not using much of macOS's like default interface. So we, we design all of that. Every little window, every little interface um, is designed. And most of them you'll see are fairly like systematic. They follow... Mm -hmm the basic principles um, because we also offer like an API where you can build your own extensions. So we give you all of these things to play around with. Um, so we follow that system quite rigorously. But these days I'm mainly working on the web side of stuff, um, which is odd because I wouldn't consider myself like a web designer, but I guess I guess I kind of am. <laughs> like uh, <laughs> I like playing around on the web quite a lot. So yeah. Um, yeah, that's the main like division of labor in Raycast is web versus macOS. And speaking of web, you launched a course for how to build websites with Framer. Yeah. And I want to talk a little bit about that because, I mean, I've had a bunch of guests on the podcast that work at Framer, that work on Framer, that work with Framer. And mm. so I think I'm just going to end up continuing that trajectory until I get every <laughs> single person on Twitter that worked on something related to Framer. But I I want to ask you a couple questions about your courses because you're, cause it's, it's like there's a beginner section and there's an advanced thing and you can buy the advanced thing. And the advanced thing looks actually pretty legit, right? I was, I was <laughs> eyeing it before. I was like, oh, should I buy this? Oh, let me look at my pocketbook right now. Okay, maybe, maybe <laughs> next month, maybe next paycheck. Um, but it looks like it's really valuable. And I want to know your thought process of like, coming up with this this idea, how you organized it, but also why you even launched it in the first place. So let's start there. Sure. So, I mean, I guess to rewind, probably about a year, just over a year, no, just under a year, Framer launched, like re relaunched for the fourth time or whatever. Um, and like everyone else, I was kind of like, cynical about it and like, oh, this kind of looks cool, but whatever. And then I had, I just had a use case where I was like, I want to build like a little website for, I run a design studio on the side mm -hmm. and um, I just want to make a website for that and let me try frame it out. And I was kind of blown away. I was like, oh, this just sort of fits with how I want building websites to work with a couple of really annoying exceptions like there's some really annoying ways to use it that aren't obvious like um, one thing framer does that i think confuses people quite a lot is it has like um, primary variants and then like all the other variants listen for changes in that primary variant so you'll be like changing something and all your other components or all your other variants have updated and if you don't know that's going to happen it's super annoying just like don't understand why that's happening and framer doesn't tell you it's going to happen and um <laughs> their documentation was kind of like all over the place so i was like i feel like there's an opportunity here to help people learn how to use this thing and really like push its limits because a lot of the resources i found online were just like here's how to do this like flashy scrolling animation thing and good luck like after that you're on your own and I wanted something that was like, 
okay, how do you, you know, make a custom form? Like, what if you need something that Framer doesn't offer? How do you do that? How do you make it like responsive? How do you make the CMS scale? Like all of these things, um, there's just like not currently a very good resource for how to manage a Framer site that's getting a bit big, that's trying to do some custom stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I just sort of set about trying to like scaffold out that course. And it was around about this time that RID launched Dive. And 24 hours before he launched it, like the site went live, he he DM'd me on Twitter and he was like, um, we were just talking about Framer in general. And he was like, do you want to do a Framer course on Dive? I was like, well, I was thinking about doing one anyway, but yeah, that would be pretty cool. And he was like, okay, cool. We're launching tomorrow. So just write like a little blurb (laughs) about what this course will be (laughs) and send her a headshot. And I was like, okay, I guess it's happening now. Like, I guess it's real. Um, yeah. And then after that, I just started like setting about trying to figure out what the course should actually entail, um, which is, you know, super difficult actually. What's that process like though? Like actually figuring out what you think people should learn? Yeah. So I bumped around for a while on like what the course should be. And then I sort of went back to courses that inspired me, courses that I actually took from beginning to end because I know a lot of us buy courses and never finish them and that's fine. But I kind of really wanted people to like take the whole thing. Um, And one of the courses that I kept going back to was, it's a course called Advanced React by Wes Boss, who's like a very famous course creator on Twitter. And he's just like exceptionally good, exceptionally, exceptionally good at breaking things down. But the thing he does is like develop a fully fledged application. You don't learn like bits and pieces. You learn how to build something from start to finish, which was something I found really valuable because you learn, you learn in the gaps, you learn in the things he's not actually teaching you. You get to look at the files and be like, oh, that's how that talks to that thing. Okay, Mm -hmm. I get it now. Um, so I wanted to do something along the same lines. So I started, um, trying to build like a big example website. And, um, and then I came into the problem of like, okay, well, what should this website be for? Like, should I just come up with a fake company? And I was like, yeah, maybe that's a good idea. Um, and I was talking to Adam Wathen who runs Tailwind, um, and in their templates, they have like really, really funny, um, like copy. It's not Laura Mipsum. It's like really hilarious copy, but you just sort of like scroll past it. You don't even read it really. And so I sort of stole the idea from him to come up with like a fake, um, tax evasion company, um, called DTAX. And I just said about like building this whole website and okay, if this company was real, what would the landing page look like? What would their blog look like? And just trying to like push the limits and include things I thought needed to be taught in this big website and then break it down lesson by lesson and go through it. That's pretty much how I ended up doing that. I'll tell you something. The uh, website for the, 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 what is it, evading taxes? It's called DTAX, right? Uh, I clicked the link of that because it shows like the preview on Twitter and I didn't see the tweet part of it. I clicked it and I was like, what the hell is this? What the hell? I've never, this can't be legal. (laughs) I swear to God, it looked like a real website. And I was just like, I got to the bottom and I was like, oh, it says not real. Yeah. And I was thinking like, what are like the implications of that? Like, have you gotten any like email saying, take this down or like, you know, IRS is like, hey, knocking on your door. (laughs) Quite the opposite. I get, I can't tell if all of them are like joking, but I get a lot of DMs being like, the buttons don't work. Like, I can't sign up. Um, please, my current solution isn't working. I need to. <laughs> I think people are messing with me, but. Um, oh, geez. Yeah, I've gotten a lot of a lot of people who I think are, are really keen to try something like that out. But it, it ended up being like a really good marketing tactic because people thought it was really funny or really interesting. <laughs> as a product um 
yeah, and yeah, it went pretty pretty well. So you're doing this though on the side of working at mm. Raycast and your own studio. I'm sure you don't do like a billion things with that, but you do probably some things with that. How do you balance all three of those things? And I'm sure there's more things that, that we don't know about, but yeah, I mean, it's been it's been difficult. Um, yeah. The course the course took way more time than I anticipated. I think that's pretty classic. But um, you know, you think to yourself, look, it'll be different when I do it because you know I'm good and stuff. And it no, it takes a really, really, really long time to make content, as I'm sure you're aware, but also just to like prepare for making content. So if each lesson takes me an hour to two hours just to record, um, the prep for that is like a day, just preparing so that I have 20 versions of the DTAX frame of file, one for each lesson at each stage. So oh, I can gosh. like go back and re-record if I've made an error or go back and re-record when Framer adds a new feature, which they do like every week. Um, so it's taken taken a lot more time than I'd hoped. So I put a, a lot of my um, like clients on pause for a while. Luckily, you know they're pretty flexible, so that's been fine. But um, yeah, and then just balancing work. You have to be like religious about separating your time. Um, so I'll work on the course for like two hours in the morning, like get up first thing, work on the course and then do my work day and then try get an hour after work to work on the course and then record all the stuff on weekends. And it's just brutal. Like I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It's, it's a slug. Um, but at least with a, with a course, there's like a launch date after which it gets a lot easier. Like I still maintain the course and I, we have a discord, like a community that I help people out in and like share cool stuff. So there's maintenance, but it's not, it's not as like intense anymore. But if you're doing like a full-time SaaS thing on the side, it, that would just never end. You know, it just keeps going. Um, I, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll admit that I also was going to do a framework course and then I saw yours and I was like, nope. <laughs> and there's no way I can keep up with that. I can't get the quality that high and I definitely can't produce that much as in that area that would like be a different reason to buy. So I said, I'm out. And also you're right. The updates of Framer probably would be really painful to keep. I mean, good for them for updating it constantly. Yeah. That's an amazing thing to hear because rarely do you hear that anymore that people are even updating software, right? You know, they have all these SaaS that are, that are being produced now, but with AI and whatever, but um, old school stuff. You don't want to hear much more about, so that's cool. Uh, that also it, it makes me feel a little better that it's not not that 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 I want you to be stressed, but like that it is hard to produce something at high quality. That makes me feel good that like there's people out there that are actually investing in things and trying to put a high level of craft to it. Whereas there's all these subscription agencies that are like, I'll do a website in two days, and then mm. it's like shit work, and then they they act all proud of it. And they should be proud that they get something done, you know, if that's their goal really fast, but they can't really be saying that they're doing the best quality work. Um, yeah. But this course seems to be really, really high quality. So it's something that I think I would invest my time learning from. So uh, kudos to you. And I'll put it in the show notes for those who are uh, wanting to, to jump on to that. Thanks very much. Yeah. I mean, I sort of struggled because when I said I was going to make the course, like a bunch of other courses popped up and I was just yeah. like, oh my God. You know, like Traff has a course on dive teaching frame. And I was like, how am I going to, what? Um, so it took a while to find the niche. And I ended up moving into like the more advanced sort of stuff. And, and Traff does like the fundamentals and a bit more. Um, but yeah, it is, it is kind of terrifying when you see like someone else has launched a new frame of course. And you're like, am I just wasting my time here? But you never see the other side. Right, you never see. Sure. You, you don't actually know how things are going. You don't actually know the quality of that sort of stuff. So I would just say, like, if you want to do something, don't like look at what others are doing and be dissuaded. Just like keep doing it. You'll learn something. Um, whether or not it'll be worthwhile is kind of up to what you put in. But uh, yeah, don't be dissuaded. 
Okay, cool. So then you're saying I should kill myself to build a framer course. Advanced framer too. Advanced, super advanced framer. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but I don't think that there's many people that really know how to master such a tool. I mean, you're really going into depth, like trying to figure out how to build like custom what inputs and stuff. Um, and most of this stuff generally won't be used by majority of people. It's just those who really have a need for it, which I think is going to start to grow a lot more now because more and more trying to get involved in Framer. It's like, all right, how do I up this website? How do I get this to be better? How do I get rid of this other tool and just use Framer? So it's becoming like a really important thing. So it's really good timing that you did launch the course finally. Thank you. Uh, (laughs) And so do you find yourself, like, do you find that you like teaching or is this something that you like said, this is like the one time I'll do it at checkbox or what? Yeah, I... I really like teaching people, um, kind of almost against their will sometimes. Um, like my Strap girlfriend them to a chair says, and just waterboard them until they learn. Basically, that's my strategy. <laughs> At least with my girlfriend, it's just like she calls it facts with Dan. She's just like, I didn't ask a question, but I'm learning. Um, <laughs> I'll just tell her random stuff. But uh, I really like uh, teaching people. It's actually why I started like tweeting more regularly. Is I was just like, I actually know, it turns out I knew some stuff or learned some stuff that other people found valuable. Um, and sharing it like makes you feel good when people are like, oh, that's cool. I didn't know that. That's just like an amazing feeling because I love that feeling in myself. I love learning something and going, oh, that's how that works. That's epic, you know. Um, so I find it really rewarding. The tough part about making a course is you don't get that feeling for a long time. Like you front load just all the agony and right at the end, people take it and they're like, oh, this is really cool. Thanks. I didn't know that. And you're like, oh, it's so far removed from all the work I put in that it doesn't feel as good, but it's still nice. You know, how do you know all these things? You, You posted a while ago, over a year ago, a thing about color. And that the color algorithm for figuring out color contrast was being updated or being worked on by the WWA, mm. whatever it's called. Yeah. And I remember having conversation with uh, heads of design at IBM. And they were saying that that color contrasting is really weird because in, even in results at the time, the standard at the time, which is a year and a half ago at least, um, the colors were not up to standards to people's vision where if you put white on a certain color or black on a certain color they actually wanted the opposite and the color contrast ratio said otherwise so there was a big debate internally of what we should be doing i saw your tweet thread about the new coming update to the color contrast and how they're tweaking it and how it actually genuinely does look better like i I, you know i tested it myself it looked great but is it valid? Is it fully finalized? I don't, I don't know. It's not, I don't think yet, no. but I shared that and you should have seen the internal storm that I caused <laughs> and how everyone was like, don't even bring that. We just spent three years do that, 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 that. I was like, all right, don't, don't, I'm not sharing anymore, but controversial that's what i'll say your work is controversial and it's great and i love it and i love that you're learning uh, you're sharing all these learnings so how do you like how do you know these things well i mean so how i learned about that specific it's called apca the the like new attempted standard for calculating color contrast uh we'll get into why that's controversial in a little bit but boy was it controversial um but how i learned that was i I built a Figma plugin for calculating color contrast. I actually wrote a like tutorial series on how to build Figma plugins. Oh, no way. And the plugin we built was a color contrast checker. And obviously during that whole process, I had to figure out like how do you check color contrast? And so I looked up all these like techniques and the math is really simple. Really, really, really simple. And to me, that was just like mind blowing. I was like, that's crazy. Like it's literally like addition and division. Like that's it. Um, and I didn't think about it for a couple of years. And then I came back to update something and I followed this GitHub thread 
um, like rabbit hole to this GitHub issue made by this, um, this guy called Andrew Summers. He goes under the tag Mindex Research. And it is like a magnum opus of like why the WCAG 2 color contrast um, algorithm is like completely inept and deficient. I read all of it. I consumed like every little detail. I was like, wow, this is fascinating. And um, yeah, and I just like stumbled across Andrew's work and dove really deep into it and started talking to him about like what um, what he was working on, which was APCA, which was like his version that actually takes um, a whole bunch of aspects of human vision into account. Oh, wow. Um, and then I decided to like, oh, to try like concretize my knowledge of this, I'm going to try write a tweet thread about it. And I actually wrote before that one that you mentioned, I actually wrote, wrote one like a year prior that was breaking all of this down. Um, and yeah, that's sort of how I end up finding out about most things is I just have like a spark of curiosity and I keep pulling the thread and then I'll usually have a good instinct for whether or not someone else will care and be like, Oh, that's cool. Or I can like represent that visually somehow in a tweet thread and teach other people about this cool thing. Um, but to why it's controversial uh, is okay. um, the WCAG, um, I don't even know what it stands for anymore, but the accessibility guidelines, they are a very slow moving uh, organization. Uh, and you, you can understand that. And, but they're very resistant to change. And Andrew has done a lot of work to try and get them to consider APCA. And they are actively considering it for WCAG 3. But WCAG 3 is like four years away or something. What, from now? So, yeah, probably. Like there wow. is no actual time estimate. These things move at like a glacial pace. So that's why it was controversial because I was talking about something that isn't approved yet, you know, like stamp approved by some self-elected authority, um, you know, and people in the accessibility accessibility community got really like offended by that because it could mean that people don't use the current standards, but the APCA standards are better in every way. Like in every way they encompass the current standards and just like are even stricter. So I just like could not understand like why you wouldn't want a better way to calculate color contrast because at the end of the day, it's better for people with contrast issues. It's not better for me or you. Like it is coincidentally because it's an easier system to understand. But like the at the end of the day, like we should want these things to be better for the people who have the problem. So I just didn't get it. But yeah, I got roasted for that. That is so. I mean, I, I also got roasted for that, and it wasn't even my work. I didn't even. I just. I was just like, "Hey, guys, look at this cool thing. Maybe we should check it out." And everyone's like, "No, we're not changing the colors again." <laughs> but that's so interesting that a body of this, of uh, uh, I guess, appointed or not even appointed, not appointed people, just a random committee, decides the standard for the world. We all have yeah. to abide by it. No one has a say in it, and no one can come up with something that's better, even if it's is it, is it proven to be better, more accurate, or like what's the difference? Like the biggest difference. So, yeah. So how the current system works. So there's a couple of like caveats. Like they definitely do consider alternatives, but it's a big democratic institution that votes on yeah. stuff and meets about stuff, and it's just like very glacial. So changing their minds about stuff is difficult, and Andrew has really struggled with this. But the, the current WCAG contrast algorithm um, sort of uses a mathematical re representation of color. Colors are just sort of numbers. And, you know, the contrast between white text and a black background is the same as black text on a white background in this algorithm. Um, and intuitively, as a human, you know that that's probably not true. That actually, like, it's probably easier to read one than the other. Um, and there's a whole host of like, like scientific reasons for this. Like we perceive contrast is higher between brighter colors than dimmer colors. So even if they're, you've got two colors that are sort of mathematically the same distance apart, if they're brighter, there'll be higher contrast to you than if they're dimmer. 
But this current algorithm just like doesn't take any of that into account. They all have the same mathematical. It just like is a mathematical representation of contrast. Um, and Andrew's done a lot of work with sort of um, doing a lot of like studies to try and mimic human eyesight closer. Is it perfect? Probably not, but it's definitely better. I think we all intuitively see if you look at some of the examples, especially especially with like orange text and white buttons, they will pass WCAG 2, I think it is, and uh, completely fail this new one. And when you see the examples, you're like, yeah, some of these examples are egregious that we're letting pass WCAG 2. Um, but yeah, yeah, how the organization decides what gets through, I have very little insight into. It's like the also the emoji uh, committee that approves emojis. Like, like, why would you prove that over this? Like, what, what is the reason? And they go, oh, no, we can't accept that one because of this random reason. I get that. That's annoying. Yeah. But I think what's more interesting about all of that is the design community didn't even give it a chance because some other bureaucracy said no. And we should be fighting as hard as we can for the users. That's kind of our role, right? Figuring out how we can build more accessible stuff for users uh, that works better for them, that they'll like, that they'll appreciate more, that just functionally works better. Uh, and if this thing is actually proven to be better, at least in some or more capacity than uh, the previous standard, the current standard, then why wouldn't we even try just to experiment with it? I think that that's, I think that's the problematic, that's the problem I have with other designers that they're not willing to experiment with such ideas that may prove to be better what if like someone just adopted these new standards like would they be punished for that no so this is like i think we all have a a bit of a misconception of what these authorities are like we think of them as like you hear a lot on twitter that like it's illegal not to have you know met the minimum requirements of color contrast and i think the only country that's true is norway if it's like a government website or something um but no, they have no teeth, really. Um, and at the end of the day, yeah, the reason you're doing it is so that more people can like view and access your website, right? Like mm -hmm. at the crux of it, you want everyone to be able to see it. Um, and when you think about it that way, like why wouldn't you just try see what works? Um, and the the interesting thing is like he's made it so it's backwards compatible with WCAG too, mm -hmm. so. Anything that fails WCAG 2 will fail his. So it's like, it really just seems like completely win-win to me. You've got like a stricter subset of colors you can use. Um, and why, why wouldn't you just adopt this? I, I don't know. I Do don't you get adopt it. it? Yeah, I wrote a Figma plugin for it. Um, oh, we'll link that in the show notes too. Yeah, it's called Zebra, I think. Yeah, Zebra. You guys say um, Zebra. That's I, th yes, I think that's probably yes. why it's not catching on because you say zebra instead of zebra <laughs> in the states. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so what other controversial topics have you come across that designers are like ah too hot? Um. Okay, so color was a big one. Anything accessibility is touchy with people. Um, I think there is just like a as designers like we don't have the time to get to know everything. Like we can't look into color contrast algorithms, not all of us. So when someone says like, listen, here are the rules, just stick to them, you kind of accept that. So anything accessibility has been pretty um, touchy to talk about. Um, but other than that, I think almost nothing I've tweeted about has been very controversial. Um, I think... Every time I tweet about React, there's always some dude who's like, well, actually, that doesn't work quite like that. Like, oh, okay, yeah. I'm trying to, like, distill the concept down so it's yeah. understandable. Like, I'm going to leave stuff information. out. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, okay. that sort of drives me insane. I had some of this today. Like, I tweeted about shadows the other day. And, like, I just made a graphic of, like, some shadows. And people are... Well, this isn't accurate if you, you know, like if the light actually felt right. Oh my God. It's like a, it's a representation. It's literally me making diagrams in Figma. It's not <laughs> math, you know, like the concept still stands. Yeah. 
that, that's so funny. Yeah. People on Twitter can be a little feisty and just because they've done better to do. I think we've been on Twitter too much recently with COVID. No one's allowed outside for a while, right? So people kind of gravitate towards this. Now they, they're stuck in this kind of like Twitterverse or X, mm. Xverse now. Yeah. Ugh, terrible, terrible name, terrible logo. But yeah. I think it's probably the, the main reason why we get all this crap. You know, we're tweeting about stuff. I tweeted something about like the, the Shopify design system. Like they, they try to condense some stuff, but it was so tight. It was actually kind of blurring things in my, mm. in my vision. So it's like, oh, it's kind of weird that it's so tight. Like I can understand it being tighter, but like this is like way too tight. Got a lot of views. And then some people started reaching out like, hey, you actually don't know why. And I'm like, I get why. I, I totally get why. Like I, I'm doing the same. I'm solving the same problem at the start of I'm working on. But yeah. we realize that it's too tight. So it was just a subjective thing. But people like they come out of the woodworks and they're just like, no, 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 you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. How dare you say this? Like, All right. Fine, fine, fine. Yeah. Uh, Didn't Toby tweet about that? Didn't he say like, oh, we've gone for information density because, you know, yes. like designers prefer like air and it's not efficient and all. And then I went to like the comments on the Shopify release, like medium post. All the comments were like, this is terrible. You broke like everything. Um, I don't actually know anything about it, but I uh, thought it was well, kind of interesting. Working at an enterprise, I do know that the la- one of the last things I worked on at IBM was taking all the data tables and shrinking them. So they were like 48 mm. pixels tall. We had to be able to make them all the way to 24 pixels tall. Oh, wow. For each row, each row. Yeah, and yeah. I was partially responsible for how data tables, I was leading part of the group that decided the committee, another committee of unelected people. <laughs> I was on it this time. Uh, fighting the good fight, though. <laughs> trying, to make, trying to make sure it wasn't ugly and hideous and actually still was usable, accessible, et cetera, et cetera. We had to figure out how do we get a pattern in there to shrink the thing. So I understand that mm-hmm. there's a concern with like data density and you do want to see more on the screen. You don't want to have to scroll as much or load as many items. I get that. It just was like, their examples were just like so, it looks like a mistake, but yeah. you know, we'll see how they they update it and fix. It. I'm sure they'll fix it over time. Um, but that's just just bureaucracies. I think when you have a big company, they like they like one objective. They all have to follow it, even if it's off a cliff. And then they have to send rescue to everyone afterwards. Yeah. How do you balance that? Because the previous place I worked, um, we were targeting enterprise, and one of the ways we stood out was by not looking like typical enterprise product which is like very visually dense and all the users would say like oh like it feels so nice and like simple to use because you know we were you know how we probably have 48 pixel high table rows or something like that so how do you balance that like decision is it does it come from the user like yeah that's a great question uh first of all we always start with research from the users if we start if we notice something we'll elevate that up the chain of command and there's at a at a at a, at a mature organization that will go up the chain very quick and yeah. that there is even a chain of command right and some companies is so dysfunctional it just gets lost in the noise so you got to figure out how to communicate that correctly to the right people uh because if you get if you communicate the right thing to the wrong people they're just not going to know what to do with it or they're just not going to be able to do anything about it or they're just going to reject it because they don't want it just out of spite or out of whatever big companies they take care of personalities more than they do users and, and products. Mm. So if you have bad communication, get solved that first. So after that, if it is a mature company, so if you use envisions like scale of like one to five maturity, if you're at like the four and five range, you'll be able to say, hey, here's some research. There's like a group of people that typically say, hey, bring us the research, let us dissect it or show us and present it to us. And if you're able to convince them, it's all about convincing persuasion. If you can convince them it's a, an issue, then invest in it. But uh, only at large organizations can you do that if it's a mature design org. Uh, I've noticed that at smaller companies, even with less people, they're, they're less mature. And they find it very difficult to convince leadership of these kinds of changes. So if you were to say, okay, there's users that are complaining about this. This was not something that was unique to my users. It was actually universal to every department in the company. So that was 
we have like what two three hundred and fifty thousand employees. So <laughs> it was well heard, right, from yeah. many users. And uh, so we had to actually create a micro version of the design system. So there was like the design system and then the micro compact, they call it compact, mm. I think, design system that kind of just shrunk everything a little bit more. And it kind of, it, it was much tighter, but it was what those users wanted. And in high density applications that require high, high density content, uh, like for example, if you were building uh, one of the examples that I'll use is auto AI. It is a very mm. complex application that actually allows you to test your data on uh, multiple, multiple evaluated models to produce the best model for your AI. And so you need to be able to see all this stuff going on at the same time. You need to be able to, to kind of digest information all at once uh, so you can make a quick judgment. Because if you're scrolling forever, comparing all these models, there's all the results, you're never going to be able to find the right result. So it, that kind of stuff needs to be kind of condensed. Users complain about that. If they complain enough about it, um, you can file a report that goes up the chain. In the event of this thing, though, it was so hurt, it, was, it was so echoed throughout the company that the head of design or the VP of design came to my boss was like, yo, fix this now because okay. I'm hearing it too much. So if you bother them enough, that's kind of when it changes. Uh, it also depends because sometimes design systems start out very airy and fresh. And in that case, you, you have to really figure out like, you know, there's always like the ethos of the company where it's like, it's, I want to, communicate how I feel and 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 should talk and behave to my customers. But then there's also like the actual application in use. So if it starts to interfere with that, then you just have to start playing with, okay, this A-B, A-B testing usually, um, which we did a lot of uh, like soft A-B testing. Uh, yeah, it, it, honestly, a lot of it is just a gut feeling at the end of the day though. You just hear what users say, you make a decision, you see how they react. And if they react positively, you continue making that decision and you allow others to use it. But yeah. it's just harder at bigger companies because you got to communicate it more. At smaller companies, I'm sure the design team's kind of like, you just lean over to the person behind you like, hey, make it smaller. Okay. Yeah, yeah pretty much. I'm starting to understand why um, why WCAG 3 stuff was so controversial at IBM. <laughs> it, uh, it feels like they probably have people on the WCAG working group or something. Honestly, I'm sure that they do. There was there was a designer on my team, uh, Voronu Sepadulia, who actually I worked very closely with, uh, and she uh, helped set some of the standards originally at IBM for color contrast uh, and also color impairment uh, with hmm. different you know different versions of of color vision. Uh, she helped set that standard. So our team was so close to the problems at hand with visualizations and just general contrast ratios that we helped kind of perpetrate it out. The design system team took a lot of that work and then expanded upon it and then built something really beautiful. And I think one of the most accessible, according to those standards, design mm. system color palettes that's available. And I just still use them today. But we did have issues with that. And we brought them up. And sometimes we got rejected really hard. And we got into a lot of fights. And sometimes it was an easy win. But uh, changes like that that are so fundamental. Imagine a thousand applications all having to change the color blue from this hex value to this hex value. Like how mm. hard is that to do? Probably not that hard. But is it worth the time to make a lot of money? Not always. It's not going to make or break the bank. So they yeah. generally wait on that kind of decision. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean... I, I, it sounds awful to me. Um, I worked at Barclays, which is a big company. I thought it was a big company, but it wasn't in anywhere near that scale. Um, and there is just like something about that lack, that like inertia, that institutional mm -hmm. inertia that I find incredibly frustrating. But it's frustrating. I guess that's why I'm in startups now. <laughs> well, I'm in a startup too for the same reason, I'll tell you that. But it does definitely wear on you. However, it is the best learning experience coming out of college, coming into the workforce, because you get to learn how to have the conversations, understand where people are coming from, understand people, and then understand, mm -hmm. okay, here are all the arguments that are available. I'm going to find the ones that work the best and then use those. So that's that. I have two more questions sure. and then we'll wrap up. Is that okay? Yeah. yeah. 
actually three more questions. Number one, go for it. How do you recommend designers level up their game? Oh, people ask me this a lot. And I don't know why they ask me <laughs> because uh, I have no well, idea. Well, I think really. that they see you as a really great designer, understanding these really deep topics and then breaking them down and being able to break down complex things is something a designer's, that it's a hard skill for a designer to learn, but that is like the skill designers need to learn. So Yeah, I, I would say in that case, like the thing that has made me a better designer is trying to understand the medium I'm working with. And this used to be the case, like in print design, you like print designers would know about all kinds of like papers and inks and printers and stuff. But like, I find we don't really know much about like our screen technology, like the way color is represented on screens, text rendering, stuff like that. Like, because it's so easy, um, we, we feel like we don't really have to know. And luckily, like I've been curious enough to just find out and it has sort of made me a better designer not in any like one obvious way i can point to and be like this is the clear benefit of just like knowing how you know like to model color on screens or whatever but it's it's like uh the sum of the whole is greater than whatever that phrase yeah. is right like yeah you get it like it adds up and adds up um to the point where you just feel much more comfortable in any sort of given task and when things aren't working, you have an idea of why and you have an idea of like what strategies you can use to, to fix them. But yeah, I would say that just try be a bit more curious about the tools you work with, whether it's Figma or Framer or the computer itself, whatever's like interesting to you. Just try to dive a little bit deeper and understand like why it works the way it works. I love that. Uh, Joshua Gao, go. I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name. Awesome dude. Asks how to, how to create such unique and easy to understand visualizations. Um, well, step one is Google Image Search for the thing you're trying to do. Um, so what I'll usually do is say I'm trying to represent like I did one about like touchscreens, how touchscreens work, which is fascinating. Um, and so I just like Google Image Search. I like science, like scientific article articles about um, touchscreens. And they'll always have these like really ugly diagrams in them. But they usually like someone's done the hard work of figuring out like what the visual metaphor is for the thing you're trying to communicate. And then it's just trying to take that and make it simpler and just like distill it down so it communicates one or maybe two things at a time because these like scientific diagrams will be quite complex. And like what I try to do is have like one diagram per piece of text. So it's like I'm teaching you one thing and then I'm demonstrating one thing. So it's, I guess if you distilled it into like steps, it would be like look for prior art and simplify it. That would be my strategy really. That's a, that's a good strategy, actually. I haven't heard that before. That's smart. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that one. Uh, and then the last question of every podcast I do now, uh, the whole podcast is about how are you basically shaping the world of design? I want to know how has the world of design shaped you? Interesting. Um, yeah, I look at things curiously now like like I sort of mentioned how I got into design was I saw an article about material design and I was like wait what like people are designing these apps on my phone I had no idea I just kind of assumed they like popped into existence uh, I had no idea um, but that has sort of unlocked like a whole second world for me, like I look at the world in a very different way. Like I think of everything as being designed now. You know, you look at a car and you think like, why does it, why is it that particular shape? Or like, why is that thing there? Everything is sort of like, um, yeah, I look at everything as designed now. And that, that's like a blessing and a curse, right? Because you just can't stop trying to rationalize decisions other people have made. Um, <laughs> But it is just like a more interesting way to live life. I think just going around being curious about why it was built or designed that way because you yourself 
or someone who builds and designs things. I think it's just kind of interesting. Love that answer. Thank you so much for joining me on the pod. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This was fun. I think this was our I want to say this is our most interesting episode because it had like the most detail of like the things that I was yeah. able to cover. And I wish we just had more time because I would have asked you a hundred more questions. But this this will good this will be good for now. We'll, we'll have to have part two, three, four, five, and six next week. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. It was awesome. All right, man. Have a good one. Yeah, you too. Cheers. Thank you.